At 26 shirts, a different Buffalo-themed design is sold every two weeks. 52 divided by 2 is 26, hence the name 26 shirts. Here's the best part. For every shirt sold, a donation is made to either a local family in need or a worthy charity. Since 2013, their designs have managed to raise and donate over $650,000. Head over to 26shirts.com and see what cause needs you this week. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. So the Buffalo Sabres and the Buffalo Bills have combined to play 15 games between the two as this podcast goes to air on early Tuesday morning. And guess what? They've combined to win 12 of those 15. Fall season apparently is elite season for Buffalo sports. On that note, welcome to episode 163 of the Moranalytics podcast presented today by 26 Shirts. Today is Tuesday, October 22nd. Thank you as always for listening and for downloading it. You have not yet subscribed to this future award-winning podcast. Please go ahead and do so right now. Also go on YouTube, Moranalytics Podcast YouTube channel. Subscribe to that exclusive audio content you'll only find there. Coming up on the podcast today, I have an extended chat with Brian Cozio of WGR 550. Long-time Buffalo Sabres intermission and post-game host. Also the co-host of Tita Green with my man Kevin Sylvester. Also a math and media teacher at Sweet Home High School. Also a tennis coach at the school. God only knows what else he does. I'm probably missing some stuff like he doesn't already do enough things. Anyway, we talk about his life and his career. Growing up in Lancaster, turning his love of sports as a kid eventually into a career while also pursuing teaching and coaching. We go inside his job doing Sabres coverage, some of the challenges that it presents. We talk about the division amongst fans as well as the media. During those Sabres tank years not too long ago, in fact, Ryan was kind of like caught in the middle there, even at his own radio station. We spent some time talking about this year's Sabres team, who again, off to an absolutely blazing start. We try to figure out what they may do. When Brandon Montour returns soon, plenty more. It's a great chat with a guy who's very well-liked and very respected in the Buffalo sports media. We also got a story, and I'll save it for the interview, but Brian and I actually just met a couple months ago. Didn't even realize we were meeting each other at the time. It turns out we were on the same flight, not just the same flight, but like the same row and sitting next to each other. Kind of funny how it turns out that we knew each other without actually recognizing it right away. So cool stuff there. Anyway, after that, I got my man Joe from New York City on with me for a rare Tuesday edition of The Running with Joe. Today, we're talking all Buffalo Bills on the heels of a very ugly win against Miami. But you know what? It was a win nonetheless, and that's all that matters at the end of the day. We talk about Trey White not just being the reason why the Bills won that game. And make no mistake about it, okay? We're not for Trey White. Buffalo is 4-2, not 5-1 right now. And in my opinion, I think he's the guy who's becoming the MVP of this team. So we discuss him. Of course, we talk some Josh Allen, his roller coaster season, second year. It continues. 
But I'll tell you what, the important stat on Sunday, no turnovers. That was huge. We hit on that. We talk about John Brown. And I'll tell you right now, I'm like ready to start a John Brown Appreciation Day on this podcast. What a find he turned out to be by Brandon Bean. Huge signing. One of the best bills for agent signings in quite a while. So we hit on that. And of course, we spent some time talking about the defense, which, look, they didn't have a good game against Miami. Miami's a really crappy team. They suck. I get it. I'm not concerned as a whole with the defense, but there is one area of this defense that does concern me going forward. We'll talk about that. We'll talk big picture. Lots of good stuff there with Joe. Real quick, before I jump into the episode, funny story. Well, maybe it's not funny to him. Kind of funny to me now in hindsight. I got some brand new audio gear, recording gear over this weekend to do this podcast and some other projects. And I thought when me and Joe hooked up for a segment to tape that I had everything all set up. And it turns out that I did not. So we spent a half hour recording. And then about 10 minutes after we were done, I said, uh, we're going to have to do this again because I messed up, but I forgot to arm the recorder. This thing is confusing. It's like a computer. I'm getting the hang of it now, but at the time I, I screwed up. So anyway, point being, Joe's a cool dude, man, because he agreed to do this segment with me again. Had to talk about a lot of the same things twice, which is never fun. But anyway, uh, kind of a funny little anecdote there. So you know, the, the the plus side for Joe is he needs to practice. So it all worked out, man. Anyway, let's get into today's show. It's a good one. First up, I got Brian Cozio from WGR, followed immediately by Joe, another installment of The Running With Joe. Let's do it. All right, my guest today is a longtime on-air personality at WGR 550. Handling Buffalo Sabres intermission and post games. Also, the co-host of the Saturday morning Tea to Green show on WGR with Kevin Sylvester. Also, a pretty good math teacher from what I hear, too. I'm talking about Brian Cozio. What's going on, Brian? How you doing? I'm great, Patrick. Thanks for uh, having me on. appreciate it. I appreciate you being on. And before we get started, kind of want to tell the listeners a funny story how we met, actually. We met in person inadvertently a couple months ago. In an airport, on an airplane, of all places. It's just, uh, it was weird. We were sitting, didn't know it at the time, but we were literally sitting next to each other on the flight. I can't remember exactly what it was, but I was on my Twitter, and I had, it was something about the bills, and you saw it, and it said something, and then we kind of like, it clicked. You mentioned something about the chicken wings that I was doing, so you knew who I was. It was like, oh shit, that's Brian. And then I knew who you were instantly. It was just kind of weird because we had never actually met before. But then next thing you know, we're sitting on a plane having a conversation with each other. In fact, the whole flight from Buffalo to Baltimore, we're having a conversation. That was pretty cool. Yeah, it was. I mean, I re- yeah, you were definitely – You, I think you were just coming – you were obviously in Buffalo, and you were doing uh, your wing – what was it? How many days in a row that you were doing your wings? And Lots of them, whatever, yeah. <laughs> yeah. For whatever reason, yeah, we were talking about the bills, and then – I think you mentioned about how you were doing wing reviews. And then I said, oh, yeah. And then, you know, we kind of confirmed who we were to each other. And then obviously meeting there. Yeah, it worked out great. I'm glad uh, we ended up sitting next to each other. Yeah, that was a cool. It was a nice flight, man. So what I kind of want to do is the same format that I have with most sports media people on. And that's give fans an opportunity to know a little more about you. And then, of course, we'll talk some Buffalo Sabres as well. 
let's kind of go back to the beginning, man. You grew up in Lancaster, right? You went to high school in Lancaster. What was life like for you early as a kid? I'm assuming you got into sports early. What was Lancaster life like for you? Yeah, I grew up in Lancaster right in the village and went to Lancaster schools my whole life. Uh, my mother was a teacher in the district, so she kind of knew, you know, a lot of the kids around that uh, I was friends with. And I was definitely a sports crazed kid. I played multiple sports throughout high school, did football and basketball and had had played tennis and then eventually switched from football over to golf. Uh, my younger brother, as a seventh grader, was really good at golf and he decided to be on the team or he came out for the team. So before my end of my high school career, I switched over so I could be on the team with him. And, uh, that was a lot of fun. And, uh, yeah, I mean, on days that I wasn't playing a sport for school, I would be after outside after school playing, whether it was, you know, pickup hockey in the yard, my father, he was awesome. He would build an ice rink in our backyard. So I got to play a lot of that with my neighborhood friends growing up. And, uh, yeah, I had a good time being at Lancaster and, uh, went on to go to college at Brockport, but, uh, grew up my whole life in Lancaster and live in Williamsville now. And so far, so good. Life has been treating me well here as a Western New Yorker. When you were a kid playing sports, were there any one in particular that you liked playing the most? And was it the same one that you were the best at? Probably, I would say I would, we played the most football and sometimes, tackle that I'm sure now people would view as unsafe, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, um, yep, yep, yep. And, you know, I, I'm even, you know, I was having this conversation with uh, somebody even in my building about just how football practice used to be, about how we would, you know, we would do these drills. And I, I'm even thinking, like, back to my modified football days from, like, middle school, where we'd be, you know, you'd have the ball, you'd be in two cones, and you'd have to run through two guys, and the whole team would be, making noise and you look at it now and probably I'm sure these, I'm sure some of these drills still even occur across the country, but now probably uh, now that I'm a coach and I'm looking at this, I don't coach football, I coach tennis, but now thinking about it, uh, I'm sure athletic directors and uh, trainers and uh, medical staff across the country are probably cringing hearing about some of these things that went on. But um, yeah, I, I probably played football the most. I loved playing quarterback as I went up through the level I was at Lancaster. We had great teams. So I was never the starting quarterback. I was always backup, um, which was good that we were great because I would always get in games. I would usually, by the time the thir mid third quarter, you know, start of fourth quarter would come on, um, I would get in because we would have big leads. The only yeah. problem is I really get, I didn't get to throw that often because when you're up that big, it was pretty much <laughs> and in the ball. Off. Play. Yeah. That's right. You mentioned, yeah. you mentioned golf too as a kid. We, that was a time where like golf might have not, not like I'm saying you're like this old guy or anything, but golf wasn't quite as fashionable as it is right now. It wasn't like today playing golf is an everyday occurrence is very common. You go walk up and down the street, half the kids probably play golf, but not even that long ago, playing golf, being a golfer was a lot more rare, right? I agree. I, I would say before I joined, before I switched and joined the team there late in high school, it was not cool at all to golf. Yeah. I'm not saying it's the I'm not saying it's the coolest thing in the world right now, but it was definitely looked at differently then. And then Tiger Woods came along. That was probably you know mid to late 90s when I was finishing high school. And now, as you said, it, no one thinks twice about a guy playing golf. And kids play it all the time. And kids are 
they kind of look up to the better golfers in the school and they talk about them like, you know, they're some of the best athletes. And now it seems as though if you have a chance to play golf, high school kids are excited about it. So it's definitely different from when I went to high school. It was not, it definitely was not cool to play. Most kids did not play. And I don't know if it's maybe access to public courses now for high school kids is better. Um, I don't know if maybe just the school I grew up in, like golf was, you know, when you're in high school, golf's still expensive. Sure. As an adult, as an adult that, you know, as you hopefully get yourself a nice income, it becomes a little more easier to do. But when you're in high school, playing golf still is super expensive to do. Whereas anything else, you can play, pick up whatever, all your other sports, and you don't need a cent to do it. So um, it's definitely different. But now definitely I think the image of golf has changed amongst young kids. And, I'm, you know, I, I would credit Tiger Woods to like 99% of it. Yeah, I'll tell you what, you know this, I'm down here in Florida now and golf is on the same level in terms of popularity as like maybe even football. And I'm talking about my son's a high school junior on the football team and the kids on the golf team, the better ones, they're rock stars around campus. Big time. Yeah, I, I, I wonder if the national image of, as you said, football in some areas, I mean, Florida for you is still a big area for high school football, but yeah. I know since I've been teaching um, where I'm at Sweet Home, our football program won state titles like 2007, 2008 or whatever. Oh, yeah. But in, in the last decade, the amount of kids playing football has gone down. And it's weird. I mean, I remember when I first was a teacher here, I'd come to football games. There'd be 60 kids on the sideline, 70 kids on the sidelines. And now, you know, at, at, a, at a pretty athletic, rich school like Sweet Home still, you know, it's down into the 30s. And they'll... And they're playing schools that in Buffalo are class A schools. These are supposed to be large, you know, yeah. pretty large size schools. And the football team has 24 on it, you know, or 18 on it, even, you know, for some of these midsize schools. And you're like, holy cow, are, are, is football going to survive? And I love the sport. I understand the health risks with some of it now. So I get it why it's trending that way. I know that I've heard across the country that there's a lot of high schools now that are going to that eight on eight version. I know in the, in the Northwest, it seems to be really popular. I wonder at some point in Western New York if we'll see it. I'm sure in places like Florida where you're at, Texas and, you know, Ohio, Pennsylvania, New Jersey, where high school football is still super uh, king sort of status. I'm sure maybe that won't happen maybe in my lifetime. But I, I wonder if Western New York at some point, you'll either see school, more schools merge. I know with a lot of the Southern Tier schools around here now, we're starting to see more, more uh, schools merge where these high school programs – they just don't have enough kids. I, I, I'm not rooting for that to happen. I, I understand the why now as a parent, why there would be concern though in that area and, and there's less kids playing. Well, I'll tell you, I agree with you about Western New York for sure. And even down here in Florida, my son's a junior. So he's been in his program for three years. His first year, there were 150 kids. Now this is a very large school, like over 2000 students, but they had like 50, 60 kids on varsity, 35, 40 JV. And then they had like a 35 man freshman team. Two years later, there isn't even a freshman team now. It's a JV freshman team combined, which I think really plays to your point. There's maybe 30, 32 kids. Now, varsity still got 45, 50, 55 kids, somewhere in that range. But the point being, they had to drop a freshman team. So I agree with you. I think as these kids are starting to come up, less and less of them are playing football. But anyway, getting back to you going to high school, you mentioned going to Brockport State for college. Why did you decide to go to Brockport State? Were there other schools that you considered? Or is that where you wanted to go to all the way? Yeah, I, con I considered some other schools. I actually probably went 
I, I actually went to Elon College in North Carolina for a visit. I actually was, it was like down to one of my three choices, um, that and, and Buff State and, and Brockport. Um, I thought Brockport was just, it kind of had a little bit of everything for me. It was an hour away from Lancaster growing up, so I was able to stay away. But at the same time, I definitely still, at, at the very least, you know, when you make the decision when you're a senior in high school, you still value everything that's going on in your high school life and your friends around the house. And sure. that to me uh, felt important. So I was like, well, I'm an hour away, but I can come home if I need to. Um, and they had, I went for math teaching, as you said, and they had a really good teaching education program there too. But I always knew I kind of liked communications at the time that I made the choice of the school. Um, I didn't declare it as a major, but I knew they had a good program. So that was kind of something that was in my mind too. And, you know, based upon what we started this conversation with. I always loved sports growing up, and Brockport was also known, too, for their phys ed program and their athletics program. And I just I, – I knew that I – not going to a monster athletic school, I'm like, well, at least I want to be at a school that I know that likes athletics, even just to go as a fan. And uh, they had that, too. So it kind of checked a lot of boxes, and I'm really happy that I went there. What did you do when you were at Brockport State, like, to help prepare you for what you're doing right now? Well, in terms of the – communication side of it. I mean, the math side of it is not as exciting of a story. Obviously, took classes, <laughs> got, got certified, and uh, got my New York State teaching certificate, certificate and all that. Um, the communication side, it just it kind of developed. Um, I took a class, and I really hit home with the professor, and he, told, he happened to be the advisor for the college radio station. So kind of talked me into uh, signing up for that, and my freshman second semester, I signed up for it and really, really was with a good group of people that now are doing um, work around the country really well. Uh, the, the people that were sports directors at the time, one of the, I'll, I'll throw a couple names out there. Uh, Steve Lennox was the sports director. He does updates on ESPN radio, if you ever hear that name. Uh, another guy, Ryan Nobles. He was also in the sports department. He's covering the White House wow. for CNN. Wow. You might have seen him. Um, Adam Gerstenhayer was an upperclassman who I was working with in that department. Uh, he's now hosting Afternoon Drive in Cleveland. He actually filled in on WFAN in New York for a little bit. Now he's like the main sh uh, show host on the fan in Cleveland. So I had some really, really good people to kind of get me um, mentored when I came in as a freshman. And then as a sophomore, I started doing play-by-play -play for Brockport Hockey and started to get more and more involved in doing some other things with the radio station, some news, some production work, some things like that. And I liked it so much that I just started taking more communications classes to the point where I was like, you know what, I know I need to have a minor, but I'm just going to get a second degree in broadcasting. And I kind of just doubled up with my math and my communications classes and got mm -hmm. two degrees. And um, it really worked out well. I ended up getting to do play-by-play -play for Brockport football for a few years and Brockport basketball, Brockport hockey for the rest of the time that I was doing it. And then uh, even got some Batavia Muck Dogs baseball in. Our station at the time, the Brockport uh, College Radio Station, which I didn't know was the largest college-run station in the country, I'm sorry, in New York. And they also, I did not know this, they had the rights to the Batavia Muck Dog games. Mm. And I got Adam, Adam Gerstamer, the person that I named here, Adam the Bull, he's known in Cleveland on the show. Uh, he was doing play-by-play, -play, but I did some color with him for some games. And this is definitely this was a really cool time for the Muck Dogs. Chase Utley was on the team. Ryan Howard was on the team. 
I missed Ricky Williams by one season. Oh. But the summer that I did some color for those home games, they had some pretty good stars that obviously went on uh, to have great success with the Phillies. So um, got some really good experiences there, and uh, it kind of took off into me being able to apply for my do- job now at WGR. How did that come about? That was going to be my next question. Now, you've been there for a long time. I think it's like the early 2000s. How did that opportunity with WGR come about for you? So I came home my last semester um, as an undergrad to student teach for my teaching certification. I ended up student teaching at Batavia High School and Clarence Middle School. had good experiences there, but I lived back at home at Lancaster. It was just to save money since I was like, well, I'm going to be off campus for my full-time credits. I might as well just come home and do this. So um, it was probably better too, a little better job for me to focus instead of getting distracted by all the things that go on of being on a college sure. campus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when I came home, I figured, well, I, I, maybe should get a part-time job. So at the time I applied for GR. I also applied at WNSA 1077. That of course was on and going at that time. Yep. The, uh, the Adelphia run station and WGR called me back a f- few weeks after I sent in my tape and my resume and I went in for an interview and I actually got hired even right before the end of my uh, college graduation that June or that May. And I was running, I remember my first job was a Saturday afternoon shift. They were looking for someone to uh, be the board off producer for New York Yankees games. At the time, GR carried it. And uh, at the time, it was John Sterling, who seems to be doing the games forever. And Michael Kay was the other announcer with him. So that was my first real shift was Saturday afternoons, board up in Yankee games. And uh, that was 2001 summer, and I've been working there ever since. That's really cool. Now, you've been hosting Sabres intermission and post games since, I believe, 2007-2008 season. Good gig for sure, but probably always not that easy, and you probably have to deal with a lot of frustrated players and fans post games, especially in recent years. It sounds fun, and I'm sure it is fun, but it probably comes with the – but then aggravating side, when you got to deal with the wrath, though, like I said, of players that are losing every year and fans who are always bashing the team. Can it be difficult sometimes? I think, I mean, difficult in the sense of what the job entails. Yes, there's sometimes it's difficult. And there's some things that are difficult about it that probably listeners have no idea about that are on the technical radio side of things. Sure. That, you know, sometimes we deal with on a nightly basis, as anybody would in their job on a daily basis. So, you got to kind of overcome that and understand, like, look, we still have to produce a radio show. Uh, we're not just even on WGR. Like, we're on seven other stations in Western yeah. New York and Southern Ontario. So that portion of it is tough. Um, when people ask me what's the hardest part of the broadcast itself, beyond the, you know, talking about watching the team, uh, the hardest part is always the timing because we're the only station that simulcasts. We don't have our own separate radio announcers right. we have the msg crew which you know rick and rob or, or dan dunleavy and rob so the the hardest part for me when i'm doing intermissions or pregame is the timing i have to hit exactly the same time as what msg is doing in terms of when when you know when rick Jenneret starts the broadcast at 705 after the anthems are over like i've got to make sure that i've done what i need to say i've got all my sponsors in We've taken the commercial we need to take, and it's got a timeout to the second. And even during intermissions, because we have to rejoin the MSG feed because we have that on GR, 
Uh, I've got to have my, you know, my timing of that intermission. I have to break at exactly the second that it is. And if I'm two seconds late, well, then you as a listener are going to miss the, you know, two seconds or five seconds or hopefully no action at all. Um, so that's all that to me. And part of the broadcast is the biggest challenge. Now your question about watching the team. Um, I definitely, the, the year that I started was the year after the two conference finals run so right. coming yeah. in here thinking, wow, I'm going to be, get to be on the broadcast for, you know, one of the league's best teams. And they've only made the playoffs two times in the 12 years that I've been hosting. They haven't won a playoff series. And as we know, I'm hosting through the tank years and those years were the toughest to take phone calls because you had like a divide amongst fans here that right. fans were really pissed off that they were trying to lose on purpose. And you had these guys that, you know, I, I would say more so kind of the old school athlete mentality of like, you never go out there and not try to win. And like, you're, you're embarrassing the Sabre shield. You had those sort of calls. And then you'd have the guys that would call up that would take joy in the fact that they lost. And I always felt kind of caught in the middle in the sense that I understood, I understood why there was a benefit to losing, but at the same time, just for me playing on sports teams my whole life and then being a coach, like, God, I would never, ever, ever want that to be in my locker room. And I, I felt really bad for the players. So when I would get a caller that would call up and be like, yeah, it was awesome when Mike Weber took another penalty or, you know, Zenim Kanapko messed up and gave the other team a goal. And, you know, so like I always was, I felt like in a struggle there uh, to try to make the, the radio entertaining. Yeah. Um, but it, it was definitely, that season itself was very, was very weird. And uh, I, I understand I don't have the toughest job in that arena, but everybody in that building at some point has a right to go home early or if you're at home, change the channel and I got to watch it all <laughs> finish every time. So uh, <laughs> yeah. there was definitely, there was definitely some nights where I'm like, Oh my goodness, this game is just killing me here. But, uh, but overall, I mean, obviously it's a fun job. No doubt. The tank season that you're referring to, I remember having a long conversation on this podcast with your colleague, Howard Simon, and he was talking about how conflicted he was about that before eventually kind of jumping on the tank. But he talked about just what a rough season it was with fans and phone calls and the division, like you just talked about. Some fans wanted to tank. Some fans were like, I don't want to. I'm paying my money. I'm spending a lot of money on this team emotionally investing in this team. I don't want to go out there and watch them intentionally lose. The players will never do that, but management will put you in those positions, you know, where the, the, the cards are stacked against you. But Howard was talking about that. What an incredibly, um, incredibly confrontive time it was between fans and the talk show host, and I'm sure you got a nice taste of that yourself after some of these games. Oh, yeah, no doubt. And, I mean, even amongst the media, like Howard said, but I'm sure you've even talked with other Buffalo media members. Oh, yeah. There's still there's still divide to this day. Not that we're not friends with each other from other media outlets, but uh, or even within our own station of, well, you know, I agree with how that played out, or I disagree with how the Sabres played that out, you know. So I just I just think from – the, the 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 tie for me that was really tough when you're in that building and before I was actually the host job and I, I would be in the locker room with Paul Hamilton, like interviewing these guys, like they're human beings tried. And a lot of them, because they weren't good, they were fighting for their careers and sure. for their livelihood. And when the opposition would score and you would see Sabre, like fans in Sabre jerseys or Sabre's paraphernalia cheering in the building, like that was always the most uneasy part. 
it's one thing taking a phone call about some obnoxious guy that thought it was the greatest thing ever and like laughed about it. All right, whatever. But when you're in the building and you saw Brian Gianta, who a guy that I respect quite a bit, you know, kind of hang his head after a goal because he's hearing Saber fans cheering when the other team scores, especially that Arizona game night. I mean, that was a that was a pitiful night in the standings in that Very. March toward the end of the season. Yep. And I just remember that was probably the most uncomfortable night in the building um, for that reason, because you had fans in Sabre jerseys cheering when Arizona was scored. It was, it was very, very weird. And I, I felt bad for guys like Gianta and some of these other guys that, you know, they put their heart and soul into it. You knew they had the odds stacked against you in terms of the talent level on their team, but they're out there throwing their body in front of a 90 mile an hour slap shot to try to, you know, do their job. And uh, that was the part to me that always made me feel conflicted. I understood why winning, why, why being last was a winning situation. You were going to land yourself a premier player and the chance of maybe landing Connor McDavid, who's tearing it up right now, would have been incredible. Sure. And the consolation prize still was ended up to be very good in Jack Eichel. Uh, so I, I totally get that. And one side of my brain was like, yes, that's the right thing to do. But when I was in those buildings for that night and seeing the face of the players, some of these guys that I actually did maybe interview or get to know a little, like, that was tough, and you know, I I still think that there's divide amongst the fan base today on on how that all played out. Now, on the lighter side of the work you do, you also do tea to green with Kevin Sylvester. That's my buddy, man. On Saturday mornings on the station, you've been doing that since the early 2000s. What is it about that show that you and Kevin both love so much? And do you consider yourself as much as an adult now, as a golf guy, as a hockey guy? I would say yes. And it's cause I, I would say, uh, I would say yes to those questions. I have a blast with Kevin. He and I, I think have a really good relationship, but I play more golf than any other sport now as a four, a young 40 year old here. So I'm say young 40 year old, right? <laughs> Just makes it sound better. That's right. right. Um, I play more golf than I do any other sport. Now I have a 10 year old boy who's sports obsessed and luckily loves to play sports and wants to go outside 24 hours a day and play. So I'm playing football with him. We're shooting baskets in the driveway. We're, we live on a dead end, so we're lucky there. I stick a hockey net at the end of the street. And he and his buddies from the street come out and play, and I jump in with him. So I'm playing all the sports. But in terms of me, like competitiveness, like me caring about my results, golf right now is number one for me on that. Um, Kevin and I play quite a bit. Um, I feel like the reason the show works so well for us is that we kind of have our own roles I kind of serve more as the host and to keep the info intact and bring up the topics. And Kevin likes to kind of give his opinion. And at times we even give him a hard time about the fact that he loves to tell everybody about his golf game. And we like, <laughs> yeah. And Jeff Metis, who's the, the PGA pro who also has been a part of the show now for about a decade. We love to get on Kevin because Kevin in the middle of the show, like, Oh, I got the other day I was at, you know, such and such a course and I was on the sixth hole and we're like, Kevin, nobody cares. But you know, like, we, 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 but we let him tell the story, and it, it, you know, we think it makes great radio. And between that and and Jeff's expertise on the actual, you know, golf swing itself, um, we we feel like the show has been really successful. And let's face it, we now instead our our shows this week, we do it from uh, the beginning of March through Labor Day, so it's about almost thirty weeks. So we go to a golf course every week and do a show. Yeah. So we get to go to some of the nicest country clubs across Western New York, and even. We even went down to Pennsylvania. We did a show in Bradford this year. So the fact that we're able to go to these courses, we're getting to know the pros at these courses. 
you know, a very, very big perk of this show is that a lot of the courses will invite us to play it. So we either will do it in advance or maybe right after the show when we're done, uh, you know, cause it's, it's on Saturday mornings. So that's a huge perk. And, you know, I, I, I feel very, very fortunate to be able to, to still be able to kind of do the radio thing, but also it, it creates a nice leisure activity for me as too, that I really am enjoying right now at this time of my life. Now you've covered some majors before, right? Yeah. Um, double digits worth the first major I covered in 2002. I remember Bob gone name from WGR pass. I'm sure mm-hmm. that everybody, if, if you're my age or older, you would remember, um, he was the sports director at the time. And I remember telling him, Hey, um, my in-laws happened to be living near Bethpage state park, black, uh, you know, the, the black horse there. And I said, Hey, Bob, if, if I got a free place to stay, would you, you know, would you send me down to cover the event? And, uh, he said, sure. He goes, this is the, at the time, 2002 U S open was a big event. A, because Tiger Woods at that time was just, you know, that it was almost like when he was at the peak of dominating. So every golf major was must see sports, even for fringe people that didn't even care about golf that much, but it was the first also kind of big golf event in the New York city area. Remember it's just coming off a of nine 11. So I remember too, it was kind of big with security. It was also the first time the U S open had been held at a primarily public course. Mm-hmm. They had spent the, the state had spent a ton of money on renovating uh, Bethpage uh, state park. There's five courses there. They're beautiful for anybody. That, if you're living, if you're listening to this and you live in New York, you can play those courses for pretty cheap price. Um, so that's something that you might ever want to think about if you want to do a road trip there. But uh, they put a ton of money into renovating that black course and the whole facility. And obviously at some point it got good enough that uh, USGA decided to bring the US Open there. And I remember it being a little nerve wracking going through security. I mean, we're used to it now going through metal detectors and wands and all that sort of in, you know, and armed police and military presence. But at that time for me, that was probably the first sporting event that I was at because the bills games, you know, at that point too, like I don't think they had caught up to maybe having that security at that point post nine 11. I mean, this was spring of 2002. Yeah. Um, so that to me, you know, like that was kind of eye opening to me to have that. Uh, but Tiger ended up winning it, and uh, I got to interview him at some point, kind of in a scrum where I got to ask a few questions. And uh, I've gone to it, kind of springboarded. I, Bob gone said, "Hey, Brian, that was wonderful," you know. And then I said, "Hey, if I can get to go to other majors, let's do it." And he's like, "Yes, let's do it." So it kind of springboard, uh, springboarded into me covering some more majors. I've covered some at Bethpage Black, some at some uh, U.S. Opens at Oakmont and Pittsburgh, uh, Wingfoot. I've been to Baltusrol. Um, got to go to the masters two years ago, which was great, but lots of PGA championships and lots of us opens that have mostly been in the Northeast, but, uh, it's been great. I got to see five of the six us open runner ups for Mickelson. I, I, uh, I like watching Mickelson play and it's yeah. too bad he hasn't been able to finish one off yet too. But, um, and then of course the, the, uh, the couple of majors that have been at Oak Hill and Rochester, which a lot of Western New Yorkers maybe have, have been at too. That's, that is definitely the pride jewel golf course in Western New York, uh, that Oak Hill with all the history that they've had there, but it's fun. I being on a golf course is so weird. I mean, I was at the bills dolphin team yesterday and sitting there, you know, 70,000 people all going crazy. And then thinking, look, at it, it's pretty crazy too. How we how we, if, if, if we allow people to 
to like set an expectation for behavior. This sounds like some sort of psychological path here. I'm taking you down here, but <laughs> I apologize. It's amazing. Like you're on a golf course on a golf hole and there's maybe 20,000 people following Tiger Woods. But for about 15 seconds, like you could hear a pin drop and it's amazing. And, and a lot of these people are sitting there, you know, with their beverages too, but it's amazing. Like all of a sudden at these golf tournaments, even now with phones going up, like now they even allow phones at PGA tour events and everything, but it's amazing how everybody can turn their phone off. And, you know, for the most part, while guys are dressing the ball, and everything, it is, you know, it's, it's dead silence. And I, I guess we can, you can still ask fans to behave in a certain way. If that's what the expectation is, I still feel like sports fans can do it. I always think that's pretty cool. Like you're at an event with tens of thousands of people on a golf hole watching tiger play. And, uh, it's you, you feel it. It's it's like an adrenaline rush when he walks up to the tee and you're close. And I'm fortunate with my press pass that I can actually kind of sit on the inside of the rope there and try to stay out of the way. But I mean, it is, it's a pretty cool scene when he's, when he's on the hole and you're, and you're there watching it. It's, it's nothing like anything else. I feel like it's, and it's as close as you can get to any of these other athletes. Like I love being on a golf course where basically I'm, you know, a couple arms reach uh, length away from these guys hitting a golf ball. Yeah, that's really cool. I'll tell you what, before we talk Sabres for a few minutes to wrap up, you mentioned being a math teacher. Not everyone who listens to you knows that. You've taught at Sweet Home for like 19 years now. You're a math teacher. You also teach media classes too now. I want to ask you this. Your students, do they often critique your performances? Um, or do they not they care? Will, <laughs> they, so it's it's weird. I mean, there's there's this definite like kind of groups within the school some of them know I'm on the radio and think it's cool. Yeah. Some of them have will listen or their parents will listen like while they're in the car and they'll say, Hey, that's my teacher. And then, um, you know, there's kind of a connection made there. Sometimes I've had parent conferences where the mother is mad at the father because the father wants to talk sabers and the mother's like, Hey, we're here to talk about Johnny's grades. You know, like it's so like, I get that a little sometimes too, uh, which is kind of funny. Uh, my students are most impressed by how many followers I have on Twitter. They don't, they don't think being on AM radio is cool, but on social media, if they, I, I've got more followers than them, then they think that's the coolest thing on earth. Cause that's what teenagers <laughs> care about right now. Or, uh, you know, I'll show them sometimes something that I will have tweeted out and say, Hey, I want you to, sh- to, to look at this, like from a news angle, from a media angle, as you said, I do, I do just some media classes too. And all they're like, dude, you had 297 people like that, you know? So they just think like, that's the coolest thing in the world for them at, that, at this point. Cause that's teenagers right now. That's all they care about is how many people viewed or liked, you know, whether it's your Instagram post or your Twitter picture or tweet or anything like that. Um, and sometimes I'll, I'll get some kids talk to me about, you know, a caller that might've said something stupid on the air. They want to know, you know, like how did that all play out? But um, there are <laughs> yeah. definitely, there, there's definitely a change in terms of uh, this next generation coming through. They almost never, ever listen to AM radio, AM sports talk radio. However, some of them that are sports fans, they all will listen on their app, which a lot of people listen to GR now on their app. But actually, like turning on a physical radio to the AM side, like it's just that's not how this generation of teenagers are listening right now. They're listening through a very, you know, variety of different ways, a lot of them through their apps. So um, that part of it is definitely something that we talk about. It's been, it's been really great that my school life has kind of transitioned now where I kind of am half 
math teacher and half media teacher. Um, now I'm up to two classes on that. I co-advise our morning announcements. We do a live web stream uh, with a with a green screen in the background, and we create all these videos and things like that. So it's it's been cool now that my job outside of school now is kind of dwarfed into a jobs inside of school, and uh, it's really taken on a life of its own. So it, it it's been uh, a fun part that that's kind of now part of my morning job day. So now between doing Saber stuff, doing the golf show, being a teacher, you also coach. You've coached basketball, boys and girls in the past. Now you're currently coaching boys tennis. We've talked at length about golf. We've talked at length about hockey. You talked about playing a football. You were being a football player as a kid. How much you loved football. And now boys tennis too, man. You really are a well-rounded sports guy. I'll give you that for sure. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, there's some days where uh, I have to thank having a very, very understanding wife where, yeah. you know, I'll be at, I'll be at school from 7 a.m. to 2.30 and then uh, I'll go out, I'll have to coach my afternoon tennis match or whatever. And then I'll be like changing in the coach's locker room here at school. And then I'm going right to the arena for the Sabre game. And I come home at 11 at 30 at night. So, you know, and, and she's asleep already. So I, I have to be nice to my wife during Sabre season. And it kind of has a little overlap <laughs> with tennis, no doubt about it. Because yeah. uh, she does a wonderful job supporting all of these interests that I have. Let's just talk Sabres for a couple minutes here. 7-1-1 one, one after nine games. They won two out of three on the West Coast swing. Given what we thought about this team going into the season, or at least I should say the majority of fans and media thought, on a scale of, say, one to ten, how surprised are you right now with this start? If I'm answering honestly, because it's going to make it sound like I didn't have, I didn't know what was coming, I'm going to say nine. Yeah. I, I didn't think they had done enough, um, partially, when I say I didn't think they had done enough, it's because of who was still here, not even of who they went and got. I liked, I really liked Colin Miller when they got him. Um, Jimmy VC has been a little disappointing. Uh, the knee lander for Yoki Haru trade has obviously worked out. It looks like maybe worked out for both teams so far. Yeah. Um, and Marcus Johansson, I thought I'm like, you know what? These are all kind of nice role players that are help, but, the same guys that I've watched make mistakes over and over are still here. And that really had me down on this team going into the season. And I just didn't think that Ralph Kruger would have as big of an impact as he would. So I guess I would say the, the part of the re of my answer, a big part of my nine out of 10 surprised answer is that Ralph Kruger has been able to find roles for guys like Johan Larson and Zemgis Gergensen and Rasmus Ristolainen. I mean, these and Vladimir Saboka even. Like Vladimir Saboka is used to be probably the poster child amongst those four guys that I mentioned uh, for this is why the Sabres are bad. This is why they'll never be good. And oh my God, they're bringing all these guys back, including Vladimir Saboka. Um, you know, how could this, how can this be? And the Sabres are going to be the worst team in the league. So I think I definitely sensed that from fans. And I probably felt a lot of that too saying, Oh geez, you know what? Even if, even if you're not upgrading, can you at least just recycle and give me a different name to watch instead of Zemgis Gergensen yeah. or Johan Larson or, or Lighter Smoke? Even if it's the same level player, just let it be a different name and number on the jersey so at least I can feel like it's not the same old thing, even though on even though productivity it might have been the same. Yeah. Um, but for whatever reason, these guys now, they're relishing in their roles. For Rasmus Ristolainen to say, Ralph Kruger's the best coach I've had in professional sports, Like I think I think that's a pretty... Impressive statement for someone who in August, you know, when he's talking to his 
Scandinavian media said that he wanted out of Buffalo. So the fact that he's come around a full 180 on that, like that's to me, that's really impressive. And if Rasmus Ristolainen is saying that, then I'm sure that some of these other players have got to be thinking the same way. And it's so hard to buy into them because of what happened last year with the 10 game win streak. And then the total free fall that no one, you know, could, could have said, you could say it and they weren't going to keep it up, but I don't think anybody would have thought that it was going to free fall as badly as it did. Um, and I think that's why fans are still a little hesitant, but boy, has it been a tremendous start. It's refreshing to see. I feel like I believe this seven, one and one start more than I do that 10 game win streak because of how they're doing it. The winning streak last year, nine of the 10 were one goals. Yeah. And I think I want to, I want to say eight or nine of those also were out either overtime or shootout. And you still, when you watch games, there were still times where they would be caught in their own end for, it seemed like multiple shifts at times or multiple minutes. They still made very poor decisions and sometimes just got away with it. This, this year, uh, you don't see that. I mean, you do no one's going to be perfect as a hockey team, of course, for 60 minutes every game, but you don't see it as often. When Allmark or Hutton make a save, last year they'd have to make a second and a third, and then the fourth one would end up in the net. This year, after the first save, a lot of times when a mistake's been made, someone makes up for it and makes a play, and the, and the opportunity for the opposition has gone away. Um, the power play, that can be streaky. If that gets cold, that could maybe bring the Sabres back down to earth, but I, I love the passing. I love the decision-making. I love the cohesiveness. Ralph Kruger is clearly open to thinking outside the box. I mean, for him to not start Carter Hutton twice after shutouts, yeah. that's not what normal old-school hockey coach does. So he's willing to, to think outside the box, even if you disagree with it. I have to give him credit for at least thinking differently. And he was known as a communicator. That was, what, number one on his resume coming in. This guy's a good communicator. Well, with athletes these days, I mean, we've talked about how sometimes these younger athletes, it's not, you know, it's not yell, coach, get in your face guy that might have worked with my generation or generations earlier. Um, these, you know, these younger players right now, they respond to the coach kind of caring about them and making them feel like, why is, why is what I do important? And so far it's working for Ralph Kruger. So I, I got to give him a ton of credit. I think if there's two things about the start, that are most promising to me, maybe even compared to last year when they were winning 10 games in a row, is the power play. You mentioned it. It could go cold, but there's a lot of skill on that power play right now, especially Darlene in his second year. They moved the puck around real well, and they got a guy like Olafson who can bury it. He's a finisher on that power play. I like that a lot. And then the other thing, too, secondary scoring. And again, is it sustainable? I don't know. But the secondary lines are producing right now. As good as Eichel... And Olafson have been on the power play, 5-on-5, five five, not so great. But the other lines are really starting to step up. Middlestat, I mean, just a handful of games ago, maybe before this trip, I'm starting to wonder if he really belongs in Buffalo right now. But he's had three goals in his last two games, kind of easing some worries there. Connor Sherry's been very well when he's in the lineup. You mentioned Marcus Johansson. He's played really good. He's a perfect um, fit with Jeff Skinner. And even that fourth line, I mean, they've been good. In fact, by their standards, what we expected, like you talked about, They've been very good. So they've had four pretty good lines going all season so far. No doubt. And that, I mean, that power play, I mean, it's magical. I mean, the fact that Olafson has just as good of a shot as Eichel has on the other side. I mean, def defensive now, and we're seeing it already. 
they're coming out a little wider now in terms of their penalty kill to try to defend it. And well, what does that do? I mean, that just gives Darlene, who's playing the point, a ton of space to work his magic. Reinhardt in front now, you can get that puck to him, and we know how good his hand-eye coordination is. And then you got Skinner running around, basically trying to just find a spot that he can make some magic with. I love the line that Kruger said, too, about the power play. He said our number one, you know, when they asked, like, is it still, I think it was after Olsen had scored, you know, two or three in a row one night. They said, is, is the power play, is the still goal to try to set up Jack for the, you know, the one-time shot? And he said, our goal on the power play is to not let the other team know what's coming. And I don't know if that was exactly how he said it, but it's basically like we're trying to be where the other team just doesn't know what's coming. And it means a lot of movement. He goes, even if it's ultimately ended up going to end up in the same spot, he was saying how that he just wants them to be unpredictable. And I just thought, I'm like, that's, that's a really good mentality. Some power plays are so regimen that when you do get stuck, it's tough to get out of it because you always do the same thing. And even though the Sabre power play at times when they score, it looks like maybe it's the same setup with the movement and what they're doing. He says they're really trying to be unpredictable with it. So uh, I like that mentality. I'm sure, you know, as we all see over the course of the season, it's going to have its ups and downs. But right now it's definitely uh, with its ups. And the fact that Eichel's line last year, when Eichel's line didn't score, they just didn't win. Yeah, And now, I mean, looking on this West Coast trip, Eichel's line was kind of quiet offensively. Yeah. In fact, there were some games where I, there were some periods where I didn't even like them. And the middle stat line, of course, had its best three to four games after a really slow start. And I agree with you. Uh, when Paul and I were chatting sometimes uh, off the air, you know, we were sitting here saying like, geez, and Paul's sitting here telling me, I think Middlestat should maybe be going to Rochester. He's like, he's really got to figure his game out. Well, yeah. suddenly that woke up on the West Coast trip, so that's good. And Johansson with Skinner, like it seems to be working. And Saboka is playing with him. And yes, he's not going to put up the numbers that those two guys are, but for now, it seems to be working. So I'm sure Ralph Kruger is happy. The fact that he's kept lines and pairings together, that's building that communication, that's building that cohesiveness. And as long as they're winning, I'm sure that he's going to keep them together like that. I'm sure that's helping the chemistry get better. Last question here, then I'm going to let you go. Well, let's look ahead just a little bit here. And let me preface this by saying, obviously, an injury or two would kind of take care of any move that might need to be made. But what do you think is going to happen when Montour comes back pretty soon? He's surely not going to be sitting in the press box. I don't care what the record is. I feel like they're going to have to make a trade. Someone's going to have to be dealt. Scandella would be easily the, the odd guy out, but he's actually played well this year. Yoke Haro's been very good too. That might actually be their best defensive pairing going right now. Who gets moved or who gets benched? Rissolainen, we thought it was a foregone conclusion. At some point, he would be traded, but maybe that doesn't happen now. In fact, you just talked about what he had to say about Kruger recently. Is McCabe the guy out? I mean, he's he's got an A on his jersey now. What happens when they got him back? And I'm not even going to mention today, Pilot, Let's just even talk about Montour. Yeah, pilot back with Rochester, and you're right, that's not even on the radar. I mean, we thought about Casey Nelson, that's not even on the radar. Yeah, Montour's back, he's going to play. You're, you're totally right on that. Yoki Haru to start the season would probably have been the name. Yeah. But he's been really, really good. Yeah. I don't know if pulling him out is the best. And here's the thing, if you pull him out, I feel like you if the decision is made that he's out, which I would maybe not want, 
But if you pull him out, I almost feel like I would want him to go to Rochester. And it's going to sound like a demotion, but you need him to play. He's still super young at, at the stage of his career. And I've got, listen, I've got Paul Hamilton in my ear every game. And if there's one thing I remember from him is development, player development, player development. AHL is not a punishment. Develop and players and get better. Like that's, that is always in my head from Paul. And I've just come to agree with it because he seems to be right more than not on that case. So if you take Yoki Haru out, like I don't want him to be the seventh guy that ends up being a scratch three out of every four games. Cause I don't know if that's helping. So then you have to send him down and I don't know if, he at this point has shown he should be at that level. I think he's an NHL player. So then you go to Scandella, like you said, is that maybe the most easiest trade for um, Bottrell to make? That would be realistic. Of course, any team would trade for Rasmus Dahlin, but that's not happening. Like, what's the most realistic trade? And it might be that. It's not a monster contract. It's veteran presence. He's had some good starts to the season to the fact that he could be attractive to a team. Um, the wrist aligning one seems to be like the one that fans thought was all coming. Yeah. And maybe it, maybe it still is coming because you can get the most in return for him out of players that you wouldn't say are untouchable. Wrist aligning is probably the guy that you could get the most back for. And maybe for fans that are still clamoring for Vladimir Saboka to come off the second line, you know, does wrist aligning turn into the second line forward? I think in terms of, equitable trade like if you said you're going to trade Ristolainen, and you're going to get a forward back what's the equitable uh you know equal value it's probably a guy that would play on the second line with johansson and skinner so is that trade out there i know we all have thought about winnipeg with ehlers and, and maybe that's it right there but um realistically if Ristolainen seems to be turned around and ralph Kruger says nope this is working you know i don't want him moved Obviously, Ristolainen's approach has been different, too. Yeah. Uh, maybe Scandella ends up being the guy moved. Uh, Jason Bottrell did talk about quite a bit about injuries. And Ralph Kruger, for the first time, used the, the phrase uh, energy management when talking about playing Allmark over Hutton after the shutout. Do they value that enough that they would just, every, you know, every game, say, we're going to sit Scandella tonight, we're going to sit Yoki Haru tonight, we're going to sit McCabe tonight? and just keep these guys fresh, maybe that's something that Ralph Kruger really finds valuable. Maybe they decide to keep them all. That'll be interesting for sure to track. All right, everyone, give Brian a follow on Twitter, at BrianWGR, and, of course, check him out on the air during Sabres intermission in post games. Thanks, dude, man. Keep up the great work. This is a lot of fun. Thank you, Patrick. I'm glad we got to meet up, and uh, hope we can talk again soon. Today's lifestyle demands the best in wireless, and with Pulse Cellular, you have the best options available. Switch to Pulse Cellular for unlimited talk, text, and high-speed data, coast-to-coast with no contracts, no credit checks, and no overage fees. One line for $65 or four lines for just $45 each, including hotspot, Wi-Fi calling, and 50 gigs per line. And for all you travelers, we got you covered in Canada and Mexico, plus text and data in over 210 countries worldwide, all with the best phones or bring your own that's pretty awesome get the best user experience on mobile at pulsecellular.com all right it's the running with joe my buddy joe from new york city buffalo wins on twitter 
Got you on Tuesday, man. Usually you're on Friday doing a Tuesday episode with me this week. Let me start with an apology. It's kind of funny. You're a good sport, I'll tell you. I just got some new audio gear for people listening, and Joe and I actually, I don't have to say this. People wouldn't even know, but I'm going to say it, man. Me and you taped the segment just a short time ago, went a good half hour or so, and when we were done, I realized that I effed up and never armed the record, so... I screwed up and we're doing this a second time now, man. So thanks for being a good sport. We're going to talk about a lot of the same stuff again. Uh, can't wait. Yeah. So my hangover is not going to be worse from, from uh, drinking. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, anytime, Pat. I mean, you know me. I, I live alone. I don't got kids or parent or, or uh, a wife to yell at me. So I can do podcasts anytime you want. And I'm, I'm available for every other podcast. So if you're listening to this podcast and you have a podcast, I would go on your podcast. How do you like that, Pat? How do you like that? I'm, so now I'm, you're, I'm, you're I'm, blogging I'm, appearances on other people's I'm, podcasts. You already give other podcasts free gear to give away in contests. And oh, not this you know, hey, that gear, I've told you this before, that gear could have been yours if you had just, you know, reached out to me when you're in Buffalo and gone, hey, why don't you come to one of the 75 wing places that I'm eating wings at? And by the way, I did pick a brewery and wing place for us when uh, we come back for Christmas. I know where we're going. And where? I, I already and I got that. So anyways, where? yes, I'm ready. Where? Let's go. Where? I want to know where real quick. Where? Oh, you want to know where? We're going to do Woodcock Brewery on the boulevard. They have really good beer and they have good wings. All right. I'm in. I've never been there. Let's turn our attention to the Bills. So they beat Miami Sunday 31-21 to improve to 5-1 and one on the season. We should feel good about it, 5-1, and one, but we don't. At least I don't anyway. My buddy yeah. Anthony said it perfectly. He said, if you didn't see this coming – you haven't been a Bills fan your whole life. And what he meant was things are never as easy as it seems with this team, no matter where they are in the standings, no matter what year it is. At the end of the day, yeah, the Bills are 5-1 and one for the first time in 11 years since 2008. But it wasn't pretty. It was way more tense and stressful than it ever needed to be. And I think it's a fair take to say it's hard to buy into a team right now that was trailing the heavily roster depleted, the very talent void Miami Dolphins on your home field when you had not one but two weeks to get ready for them this should have been a feast man we should this should have been eating time for the Buffalo Bills but it wasn't it was a very stressful game well yeah it was for me it wasn't too stressful I actually thought they were going to win throughout like I just kept thinking they're going to wake up at some point Miami's terrible it's the you know the law the law the laws of physics it's gonna it's gonna come in back into the Bills favor um, I think where you look at the Bills now, and this my whole thing this whole year with them has been, you know, how are they in comparison to the league? And you know, like the league right now is not very good. And like I look at it like that's that's that to me is the biggest reason why you're you're still optimistic about the Bills is because of the league, you know, and how they are. And like against Miami, you know, Miami's terrible, and you want them to just destroy them. I mean, that's what we were talking about all week. I didn't even bother looking up any any dolphin stats or anything. I just knew Fitz was coming back to town. And I was like, all right, we're just going to crush them. And I think it, it was one of those games where if, you know, both sides of the ball, I think you were you came away a little bit concerned. I w- I'm a little bit more concerned about the offense because the defense to me has been great all year. I mean, so I'm, I'm going to give them a little bit of a tiny pass a little, on that regard. But, like, offensively, you know, come on, man. You you should get more than 300 yards in total offense, okay? And and two touchdowns again. 
you know, that's what the offense scored. Five of their six games this year, they've had two touchdowns or fewer. You just gotta, you just gotta, you gotta get some points up. And I'm sorry if that's me being Mr. Fantasy guy and like, uh, you know, you're just a guy who likes fantasy sports and those are the type of fans are, are here nowadays. Like, sorry, like you gotta put more points up. And that's what I want for the Bills. I agree with you. And I think it's a matter of time if they don't improve offensively, putting on more points, it's going to come back to bite them. They're not going to keep playing the Cincinnati Bengals and the Miami yeah. Dolphins of the world. That's for sure. There's three people today that I want to hit on specifically. Most important to me, and it's not even close either, is Tredavious White. I feel very strongly that right now we're in not for him. And I don't like putting too much credit on one player for a win. Just like I don't like to put too much player or blame, I should say, on one player for a loss. We're in not for Tredavious White. We're not talking about the 5-1 Buffalo Bills. We are talking about the 4-2 Buffalo Bills. His two plays that he made in the second half were the reason why the Bills won, in my opinion. It's 14-9 Miami, early fourth quarter. They're at, the, what I think, the two-yard line on first and goal after a fake field goal that worked, which I can't believe that happened, but it did, and it worked. Jordan Phillips made a great play to move the, he hit Fitzpatrick for a loss. And I think it was the next player. It was two plays later, one or the other. He threw a pass to the sidelines and what an incredible interception Tredavious White made. It's one thing to get an interception. A lot of times that's on the quarterback. That was just a bad decision, a bad throw. This was an athletic play. Tredavious White went and got the ball. That was a great play. And then the Bills converted 98 yard drive for a touchdown to take the lead. I think it was maybe two series later. Preston Williams caught the ball over the middle. Tredavious White timed it perfect. The guy had his second step. Bam. Hit him. Knocked the ball loose. Jerry Hughes picks it up. A couple of plays later, Cole Beasley scores a touchdown. Bam. Two-score lead. And that ultimately was the game. They were not playing well. The offense was, I mean, the offense was getting yards. It's not like they were going three and out. I think they might have only punted once in the first three quarters. But they just weren't finishing drives. And the defense, frankly, for being an elite defense all year, they kind of didn't show up in a way. I mean, Miami was going, I think they had like three drives that went at least 75 yards. Point being is this, Tredavious White saved the day, and I don't think the Bills win if it wasn't for him this week. He single-handedly, as far as I'm concerned, is the reason why the Bills are 5-1. and one. Yeah, man, he's 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 a cornerback by day, the goaltender, teacher by night, or whatever the <laughs> heck they have him doing, but like he's... He's their defensive MVP. I mean, he's been their defensive MVP probably for the last three years. He's going to get paid. Uh, his interception was awesome. It was like he was running like a, a route, like a, a kind of like what Cole Beasley would normally run. Uh, but you're right. That, that, that whole, that whole sequence with the forcing of two turnovers on back to back drives, getting touchdowns, that changed the whole game, you know, for, for them. And that, that's, they, I don't know if we would sit here and say they'd be, they'd be five and or four and two, as you said it. Because again, I, I I was so confident that the Bills were going to win this game, so like these moments don't really matter as much to me because I just I had no respect at all for Miami and like you know they're tanky for God's sake, right? Yeah. But uh, they, you know, Trey Trey Way was great and he he came up big. You know, it's I I look forward to seeing what he's going to be doing when when like the competition gets a little better. I'm I'm thinking about him against Cleveland, like against Odell Beckham. Like those types of matchups are going to be great for him because he's been playing very well, and you know the defense overall, it's, they kind of you know all year they, they they've been kicking ass, and I was maybe they were due for like a kind of a hiccup, you know, because they you can't you can't complain. We've we've had this we've been doing this podcast all season long, and like we talk about the, the defense for like ten seconds, like they're great. What what can we say about them? And, right. You know, today was one of those days. You know. Yeah, I hear you. I, I want to go back to the defense in a minute, but first. 
Let's get the obligatory Josh Allen conversation out of the way. Terrible first half. So if you don't like Josh Allen for, and you know what? If you're a Bills fan at this point and you still hate Josh Allen, what are you doing? What are you doing? But whatever, man. Six for 15 for 90 yards. First half, two sacks. Not good. His problem all season long for some reason, because this is supposed to be his strength is a deep ball. He missed badly on two guys who were wide open. It should have been touchdowns. John Brown. And then later, Andre Roberts. So the deep throws were bad. The first half was bad. But you know what? He cranked it up in the second half, which he seems to be doing a lot. When this team needs him, he plays better. He went 10 for 11, 112 yards and two touchdowns. He ran in that two-point conversion. And the most important thing, no turnovers. First clean game. I think this is his first clean game the entire season. And I'll tell you what, as far as I'm concerned, again, the way this team went, and I don't care how bad Miami is, and I know that the players aren't tanking, but the front office certainly is. But I don't give a shit, man. They were in this game. They were winning for a lot of this game. If Josh Allen even makes one bad pass that results in an interception like he's done pretty much every game this year, they don't overcome that today. I think if they do that on Sunday, they lose this game. So a clean game from him was important. What's your take on him for uh, Sunday? Uh, I wasn't that impressed overall with him. I thought... You know, he, he wasn't great in the, in the first half, like you said. He was kind of crappy. He, he did turn it on those last couple of drives, and that's kind of been what he's been all year. You know, he's good with the intermediate throws, but connecting deep, he's not very good at that, at that right now. And that's surprising because that's what he was good at last year. Yeah. Um, I also think the play calling was a little bit suspect. I think they, the Bills have to run the football a little bit more than they've been doing. Yeah. Uh, they, they had what, like five and a half yards per carry they averaged today, they averaged against the Dolphins. Like, um, yeah, run the five, ball more. Yeah, five, five, I think it was like 5.1. Gore had 11 carries for 55 yards. He should have had more than 11 carries. This is the kind of team where you run the ball down their throats. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, like run, yeah, like run the ball. And also stop doing the stupid quarterback option run plays. I think that's, that gotta get him hurt. feels like a recipe for a disaster. And especially you're doing it against Miami. Don't do it against Miami. Like, that's just a, a waste. But, uh, I yeah, feel, I don't know, man. It's just, oh, go I ahead. Feel, I feel like, I feel like the offensive play call sometimes, I like Brian DeVall, but I feel like sometimes he doesn't do the offense or Josh Allen any favors. And I don't get it. Third and one. I think it was third and maybe a yard, a yard and a quarter. And they're running a quick slant. One Josh Allen, which I don't agree with that, but at least you got a chance of, succeeding with that or run Frank Gore for goodness sakes. That's why you got him. Why are you trying to throw a quick slant on yeah. third and one? It's not easy to convert on a quick slant on third and one or third and seven, whatever it may be. It's just not a high percentage play. They ran a reverse of Dawson Knox another time after I remember, I think Frank Gore ripped off a couple nice runs. I think Allen might've had a sneak and then they're running Dawson Knox on reverses. It's just, don't be so cute sometimes. I don't yeah, think he's doing him Knox any favors. Is, he's since that Bengals game, Knox has not been. He's a good on drum. Yeah, he's very inconsistent. He's a rookie, and, yeah. he, and he's showing it. I mean, yeah, he makes some great plays. He had a twenty-yard catch Sunday, but he also he, he dropped a pass, which probably cost him four points. He had a bad mm-hmm. holding penalty, which wiped out a nice run by Frank Gore. It was just a a very inconsistent game. I'm definitely ready to see more Tyler Croft. But when it comes to Josh Allen. I still feel the same way that I have felt all season long about the kid, and it's I don't think he's playing that well. And for large chunks of games, frankly, he stinks at times, and he's had some killer, ugly-ass turnovers. But, and I've said this all season, he's proven to me week after week after week. And today, against Miami, it's kind of another example. I feel like when he needs to make a play, when the Bills need 
to have points when he needs to put a team away. Somehow, some way, he gets his team in the end zone. That's one thing you could hate on him. I'm not talking about you, but just people who don't like Josh Allen. There's lots of things you could criticize him for, but his ability to get Buffalo points when they need it, that's starting to become proven as far as I'm concerned. Well, he's, yeah, he's definitely done well in the fourth quarter. Uh, I would have to assume like he's probably in the top five quarterback rating for the fourth quarter easily this season for quarterbacks. But let me just go back. Like in terms of his play, and I'm sorry that I'm a stats guy by nature. I tweet stats all the time. I don't even like fantasy football all that much. I'm not a fantasy football guy either, but he, he, 200 yards, man. That's, I, I, I need more. I'm watching the NFL. I'm watching the NFL network. I see Matt Stafford have four touchdowns. I see Kirk Cousins having four touchdowns. I see the Cowboys scoring 37 points. Like, you know, I need these games. I, I you know, I'm sorry. And, and, and some people will, will come in my mentions and go, Oh, well, this player lost or the situation in this game was different because they had, a, they were trailing or whatever. Look, 200 yards. I'm not throwing a freaking parade for the guy. Okay. They traded up for him. And I was hoping today was going to be one of those. Fantasy football extraordinaires of like, look at the Bills offense. They got six, they got five touchdowns and boom. Like they did, they, they kicked Miami's ass. Like every team aside from Washington has done this year. And it wasn't the case. And I'm sorry that, you know, if that makes me a dick or makes me greedy, look, I don't want the Bills to be just a team that goes 10 and six and then gets, gets crushed by Houston. I want them to do well. And I'm always looking how they look. To these teams in comparison to how I think they'll look against other teams. I want them to, to dominate so I'll feel good when they go against the Chiefs or the Texans in the playoffs. Barely beating Miami isn't going to get me excited about the playoffs. I mean, I'm, I mean, I will get me excited, but I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna sit there and go, oh yeah, we're gonna kick their ass. It's gonna be like, uh, okay, I think maybe we could do something, but you know, today was a, you know, the, the, the Miami game was a game that you know you just you 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 should kick their asses from the start to finish. And they didn't. And, you know, thank goodness for Trey White. Yes, Allen had some good plays and, you know, he came back in the fourth quarter, but, you know, what, 90 yards at the, fr- at the first half? Come on. Like, ask for more people. The offense, he, the offense is a long way to go. I know he's a Sabres go. fan and he loves Buffalo, but you could ask for more. I agree. Listen, I think the offense does have a long way to go. There's lots of, um, it's a flawed offense. Okay. And that does include Josh Allen. He has his moments. I mean, we've seen him all year. Clean game against Miami, but he's had some really bad turnovers. The offensive line is still a work in progress. You know, Spain's only been okay at guard. Cody Ford has not played very well at right tackle. Although I didn't hear his name too much against Miami, so maybe that's promising. But yeah, not. A, I mean, better weapons than last year, but could always use more. I mean, Frank Gore's 36 years old. Singletary's been out more than he's been in this season. So I get it. But yeah, the offense is definitely... Work in progress, except for one guy, and that's the third person I wanted to talk about specifically. Dude, I'm ready to have John Brown Appreciation Day on this podcast. I love this guy, okay? What a great break it turned out to be. Didn't feel like it at the time, but when the Bills failed to land Antonio Brown and John Brown kind of became like a consolation prize, so to speak, that's a hell of a consolation prize because this guy's been really good this year. Five catches for 83 yards against Miami and a touchdown. Would have had a second or not for a bad Josh Allen throw down the right sideline. Also, five catches or more in five of the six games this season. He's just, a lot of them have been big plays too. It's not just like garbage time receptions. He's getting the clutch ones. It's starting to become obvious to me that when the Bills really need to move to change and when they're looking for a play to be made, Josh Allen is looking to John Brown before anyone else. And I know that a lot of people around the 
the league, a lot of fans, maybe a lot of Buffalo Bills fans don't really consider John Brown a number one receiver. But from what I'm seeing right now, everything I just described to you, the numbers, and yeah, sure, he's not having 10 catches for 170 yards like, say, a Stephon Diggs or someone like that can have on any given Sunday. But he's the go-to guy. He's making the big plays. As far as I'm concerned, John Brown's a number one receiver on the Bills now. No, he's been great. And he's, it's been a low-key, like, it's been his best signing from last offseason. And he does he does a lot of good things. Like, he gets the down and dirty, like, you know, seven, ten-yard receptions, and then he, he can go deep. He's had a good rapport with Allen. You know, he's he's been good. He's been consistent all year. He's he, he's on pace probably to be over a 1,000 yards, you know, which would be like the first Bills wide receiver to do that since Sammy in 2014. Yep. So I'm 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 happy with his place thus far. He's he's been a he's been a, a really a, under the radar acquisition by them, and you know he's he's done really well for them. And he's been he's been more consistent than Cole Beasley has. And uh, I think he's we should all be happy with his play right now. He's been he's been there. I you know he's you know maybe next to Josh like. You know, I, it's weird with the offense. Like, I, I don't want to give an MVP award to one of them because it's like they're they've been okay. They scored here and there, but like he's he's top three player on the offense easily this year. He might be the offensive MVP. You can make a strong case for that. So far, I mean, we're only six games in, but I th- I feel like John Brown has become the player that they hoped that Zay Jones would be when they drafted yeah. Zay Jones. He's that he's become that player for sure. Before we get out of here, I do want to touch on the defense. Look, I'm not going to sit here and blast this defense, not after what they've done the first five games. They're the reason why they won for the first five games, okay? So that would be stupid to blast them. But let's tell it like it is, man. This defense was not very good against Miami, not at all. I think Fitzpatrick had at least three drives that went 75 yards. It might be four. I know for sure that it's three. But I'm not going to concern myself with that. I just think it was one of those days for them. There is one thing I am concerned about, though, and that is the pass rush. Okay, when they played Tennessee, they got after Marcus Mariota. They sacked him five times, pressured him lots more. It was a nightmare, that pass rush for them that game. But aside from that, and again, the defense has played very good, but the pass rush has been a liability to me. Anyway, to me at times. I don't know exactly where they rank, and I really don't care. I'm just remembering watching the games, including this Miami game. Ryan Fitzpatrick, 77-year-old Ryan Fitzpatrick, was having way too much time in that pocket. Way too much time. They only had one sack, and it was at Oliver, and it wasn't even on Fitzpatrick. It was on a trick play. The guy had a lot of time, and when he was getting pressured on those rare occasions, he was escaping. That touchdown that he broke away from Jerry Hughes and scored on, that could have came back. I mean, who knows? If that onside kick goes the other way, the Bills could end up tired or getting tired or even lose that game because they could not pressure the quarterback. That is a big deal to me. I don't know how you feel about it. Yeah, I'm not too concerned about the defense. I mean, I know like they didn't like Fitz looked good against them, and like I said earlier, it's just I'm just gonna say it was a bad day at the office in terms of like how the defense played. Just one of those anomalies for them. Uh, do I like pressure? Do I like sacks? Yes. Could the Bills be better at that department? Yes. This is where maybe you want to dial up the blitz a little bit more if you if you're noticing that your four man rush isn't getting after the quarterback, especially Fitz. If you blitz Fitz. Fitz is, that's when Fitz is at his worst, when you're blitzing him and he's under pressure. And yeah, Hughes had a couple of times against Miami. He should have had Fitz and he didn't, but I'm not, I just can't, I can't, I can't get there with concerns about the defense yet. I mean, if you, if you want to play up the whole, like they haven't really played anyone outside of Brady, then sure, you know, I, I can listen to that a little bit. 
but you know, overall, I, I can't, I can't put blame on them. I mean, today to me, to, or against Miami, I just felt it was just one of those things where, you know, they, it was, it was just a bad day at the office for them. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not I, I feel the same way. I'm not concerned about the defense as a whole because I mean, against New England, they got no pressure on Tom Brady, but they still played fantastic against him. He had a terrible game against Buffalo. One of the worst he's ever had against the Bills. Sure. Cause their coverage was great. They just play smart, but I am a little concerned about the pass rush over the course of a long season. If it doesn't improve, listen, bottom line here right now, and I'm admitting this, I said this on Twitter on Sunday too. It's a very Homer way to look at things, but I feel personally, me, that maybe beating Miami, barely beating them at home could actually be a good thing that maybe the Bills were getting a little bit full of themselves during the bye week, having that week off, reading the newspapers, listening to the radio watching TV, everyone singing their praises, how good they are, especially the defense more specifically. I, I Maybe this humbles them a little bit, going out and having to struggle against a team that they should have put away probably in the first eight minutes of the game. I mean, the second play of the game, literally, second play of the game, their first-round pick, their best player probably on the field at this time, Christian Wilkins, gets ejected for throwing a punch. Second play of the game. This game could have been over in terms of talent in the first eight, nine minutes of the game. It wasn't. Maybe this humbles them a little bit. Maybe this refocuses the team a little bit, saying, hey, we can't come out. We can't take these teams for granted. Because I'll tell you, they came out of this by flat as can be. Yeah, I mean, they they were flat. I don't know if I'm going to buy into the they were full of themselves kind of thing. I mean, McDermott, if there's one thing he does particularly well, he humbles them. And Well, then why were they so flat? You tell me. Why were they as flat as they were against Miami? Because they were terrible for a lot of that game. I don't think it was clip. Pressies. I mean, come on. McDermott probably doesn't even have cable in these. Won't even allow cable in any of these players' houses. Probably. I think they just they were just flat because they took it's them the lightly. NFL. They took it's them the lightly. NFL. They had to have taken them lightly. There's no way Miami should have been able to play with Buffalo. If Buffalo's even close to as good as we think they are, and maybe they're not. And maybe that's the thing. Maybe they're not as good as. Look, this league sucks right now. I'm sorry. Like the league as a whole is not very good. Okay. Like that. I mean, that's. That to me is keeping my, my me, me having faith in the Bills because the league stinks and the Bills are a part of their league, so they probably aren't as good as we think they are. <laughs> I just think they, they it was look it was a bad game for them. I don't I don't know why it happened to them. I but I don't I don't find it that they they took them easily because because look they they're five and one but their five wins have not been blow away like oh my god these this team looks like they're on track. They have barely beat a shitty Bengals team that's that hasn't won a game yet. They beat a team that didn't have that their quarterback had mono. You know, they barely if if the Titans kicker doesn't miss seven kicks in that game or no hell he did. You know, they 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 probably lose that game too. Like they have not been this is this five and one team. It's not the most impressive five and one team I can recall in the NF in NFL annals right now. Okay, I, they just, I agree with they that. They haven't. So I, so I, I guess maybe we shouldn't have been shocked. I guess for for them to to you know to to get to barely beat Miami. I mean, my whole my whole perception wasn't about the Bills being better Miami. It was about Miami being horrific. That's why, I mean, if this was like two years ago or last year's Bills team, I would say, hey, they should beat up Miami this this year because Miami is tanking. I mean, it's we haven't had a team that they purposely just destroyed their roster so they can tank this year. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's I don't think they got full of themselves and they, they needed to be humbled and this and that or the other thing. It just kind of feels... I don't know. I, I don't because I I feel McDermott always has them so eye on the tiger, focused, and like 
oh, we got to respect everyone. You know, the, the Buff State, they could play Buff State with Nate Geary as quarterback, and they, they'd respect them probably. I agree with you there, and that's kind of what I'm getting at. I, this team has lost many times in the last couple of years over McDermott because they were just – they were outclassed, and they got blown out by some teams just because they didn't have talent. But the one thing I've seen with Buffalo Bills teams with under McDermott is they just never seem to come out flat. They win the games they're supposed to. They win them the way they're supposed to. Or they get beat by teams – that are better than them. It just looked different against Miami. But at the end of the day, what, look, go ahead. I was going to say, what are you coming out of this game? What are you most concerned about with them? I am no more concerned about anything going in or coming out of the game than I was before, except for I don't like the fact that they're not getting after the quarterback enough. As good as the defense is, and the defense has been the strong point of this team by a lot. I am very concerned about the front four. A guy like Levi Wallace, who's been very good this year, got exposed against Miami. Not that, again, he's played well this year, Levi Wallace, and the pass rush hasn't been good. But my point being, you keep having these kind of games where the quarterback's getting too comfortable back there. Guys like Levi Wallace, guys like linebackers trying to cover tight ends. That tight end, I don't even know his goddamn name. He had a huge game for Miami today. Shinsky or something. Yeah, whatever the hell he is. Both Alex, neither, Milano's out, neither Alexander could cover that guy. You got bad matchups. On a, on a defense, if you can't get after the quarterback. So if that's the one thing about the Bills that I'm concerned about more now than I was before the game. I mean, I still have concerns about the offense, but that hasn't changed. I, I had the same concerns yeah. about the offense coming into this game and going out of this game. But the pass rush is what concerns me. But here's the thing, though. They're 5-1 and one at the end of the day. And you look now, everyone has different um, expectations for the Bills. You, you've talked about this before. And I'm not saying that you're wrong. I kind of agree with you. Why do you just want to get to the playoffs? You want to be able to try to do some damage in the playoffs. You said this. You don't want to just get in there as a wild card, get your ass whooped by Houston or Baltimore in the first round and call it a season. You want to do some damage in there. So I get that. But to do damage in the playoffs, you got to get there. And right now the Bills are 5-1, and one, okay? And now you got Houston, which is 4-3 and three after losing to Indy this week. They're two games behind the Bills, and everyone else is three games or more behind the Bills, except for Oakland, who's 3-3, three and three, and I don't have a worry in the world about Oakland. They're going to end up finishing 5-11, yeah. and 11, mark my words. So my point being is that these teams are falling really out of it quick. I mean, Jacksonville and Tennessee are only got three wins. Cleveland, right now, they're they're not good. Pittsburgh's not good. Denver's done. The Chargers lost again. They're 2-5. and five. They're pretty much shot at this point. There's no one in the AFC East who's going to compete. It's right there, man. It's right there. So you got to get to the playoffs. To do some damage. You know what I'm saying? I like the yeah. way they're looking. No, I like it's right that. there. I mean, look, I'm already at a foregone conclusion. They're making the playoffs because, and again, this is where I think you, where I think Bills fans and myself included, we're at this like, you know, we don't know what to, whether to go, to shit or go, or, bl- or go blind or whatever. Like, is it because, are we excited? Are the Bills good or is it the AFC stinks? That's- and that's where I'm at. That's where I can't. I can't decide. Like, do I believe in the Bills or is it like, well, you know what? It's all about it's 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 no different than two years ago when they made the playoffs. I mean, I think they're better. This this team's better than the the playoff team that won. But it's the same the same formula of hey, the Bills got in because the AFC wasn't very good that year, and we're here again with this. Where I'm just not. Everyone in the AFC is just it's just an inconsistent. It's AFC is just not good this year, man. It's just, I mean, Baltimore, I think is, I, I had Houston. I thought Houston, like after last week, you know, with, with, with beating Casey, I'm like, that's the team that, you know, that, that can, that can get to the Super Bowl. And they lose to the Colts and 
you know, it's it's just every week is different. And I guess I should probably be more happier with the Bills being 5-1. But again, I don't want it to be where we get in the playoffs and then we, we're not playing these crappy teams that we've been playing and all of a sudden it goes straight to hell. Hi, I'm Matt Kundle, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the podcast about broadcast. Every week since 2016, we've been bringing on broadcast leaders to talk about their experiences in radio, what they've seen, and where they believe it is all going. If you live and love radio, subscribe to the Sound Off Podcast with Matt Kundle wherever you get your podcasts. All right, boys and girls, that is going to do it for another episode. Big thank you again, Brian Cozio from WGR 550. I'll tell you what, that was a long overdue guest on this podcast. Brian is one of the most respected, longtime veteran Buffalo sports media people out there. That was a really good chat, so thanks, Brian. Coming up on the show Friday, I'm going to have NFL insider Adam Kaplan. He's going to be my guest. It's actually Adam's third time doing a podcast Haven't talked to him in a while. Wanted to seek him out, especially this week because the Bills are playing the Philadelphia Eagles. Of course, Adam's an NFL guy, but he is based in Philly, so he has very intimate knowledge of the Eagles. We'll help get you ready for the big game on Sunday, so that should be a good show. Guys, if you have not yet done so already, please go ahead and subscribe to this podcast right now. When you subscribe, you're going to get new episodes before anyone else does. You can find us on Apple, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Spotify, pretty much anywhere. Future award-winning podcasts are found. Don't forget to also rate and review the podcast. It only takes a few seconds, and it really helps me continue to grow this show. Also, make sure you check out the Analytics Podcast YouTube channel. Besides highlight clips from current and past episodes of this podcast, we're now offering plenty of original audio content stuff that you're not going to hear anywhere else, including this podcast. Again, just go find Analytics Podcast on YouTube. You hit that little red subscribe button down just below the videos, that little bell right next to it. You'll get notifications when new content is released. And then last but not least, don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Tweets. Constantly tweeting out podcast updates, upcoming guests, polls, all kinds of stuff there. Thanks for listening and say it all the time. I really mean it. I truly appreciate each and every single one of you that take time from your day, twice a week, once a week, whenever it may be, and you give this show a listen. It means the world to me, and I'm very, very grateful for you. So thank you again. Have a good week. Talk to you again on Friday. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.